I am super excited to have you back for another episode of Red Receipt. It's a deep dive into the how and why of the brands we love and the creatives behind them. From blueprints to launch day, customers as community, and the detours in between. Big lessons and easy listening. Red Receipt is hosted by Antidote, the email and SMS marketing agency by people who hate boring email. Today on the podcast, I'm joined by Nate Mel, founder and CEO of ceramic design and manufacturing studio, Felt and Fat. Nate began his Philadelphia-based operation after years working in the restaurant industry, spending his spare time in the art studio. We talk about his upbringing, how his family ended up in the Philly area, and how he got involved in making dishware for some of the best restaurants in the country. As always, thanks for tuning in, and we hope you enjoy the show. Where are you based out of? So we're based out of Philadelphia. The studio is in Kensington, uh, which is funny because nowadays Kensington is uh, bifurcated into all these like neighborhoods. And historically, uh, in the last at least couple decades, it's been like known for being like a really terrible part of the city with like drugs and crime and everything. And then now there's like old Kensington and South Kensington and East Kensington, which are all like gentrified or gentrifying, like really nice. But we are in deep Kensington, as I call it, uh, which is still just as just as bad as it's ever been. Uh, but uh, but now there there are there is some changes happening where we are, some good stuff. But but it is uh, still quite wild west Philadelphia. Are you from Philly originally? I what I tend to tell people is I'm from here more than anywhere. Um, my dad's family is from here, and we're actually like colonial, uh, so we've been here for like forever. <laughs> well, as as long back as the white folk have been here, we've been here pretty much. Um, though we lived in Hawaii when I was a kid until I was ten, and then after I got out of high school. I went to Australia for four years, uh, which is a whole story in itself. And uh, then I came back and moved into the city. So I have, you know, been living in the city as an adult for like 15 years. And, you know, at this point, I'm like, well, I've been here longer than anywhere. So I'm from here. It's crazy how drastically different I would imagine Philly is to Hawaii. In Australia, it was a bit of a culture shock. Um, I uh, I was not. I was turning ten, and it was 1996, and we got here right before my birthday, which is January 7th. And if people people from the Northeast would remember uh, the blizzard of '96, which is still probably the biggest blizzard in the area in my lifetime, and it happened on my birthday a week into moving here from Hawaii. And I thought it was like the cool, and I just assumed this is what happened regularly in Pennsylvania. And I was so excited. I thought it was so great. <laughs> That's kind of shocking you were into it. Well, snow is a little kid. I mean, you see all the yeah. Christmas movies and things. It's fine. You go sledding, you know. Oh, it's delightful. What a... Of course, then soon thereafter, there was a lot of culture shock. It was like... Um... <laughs> The Northeast is very different from Hawaii. What did you end up ways. moving to Australia for? 
did you, did your family move to Australia after high school or did you? I moved. Um, when I was uh, getting ready to get out of high school, I, I had worked since I was like, like pretty young. I had like a paper route and then I like, you know, did odd jobs mowing lawns and I got the construction in the summers. I did like landscaping in full-time in the summers and after school and all this kind of stuff. And so I'd saved up a pretty good amount of money. It's also like very wholesome. My family was like very, um, uh, you know, we, we were very involved with like our local church and that kind of stuff. And so I wasn't out like drinking with the money or spending it on things. It was, you know, it was always, you know, my father always was very much thought that, you know, you should have a job. And so I had a job quite early and I saved a good a bit, of a, bit of money and I'd done well in school, but I was one of these people who just like is a good test taker and kind of gets by putting in as little effort as possible and, you know, A's and B's. Um, and it hadn't even occurred to me to think about college much at all. Um, and so when people were talking about going to college, I just never thought more than a couple of weeks ahead in my life. <laughs> and um, I just had no idea what I would want to go to college for. Um, I didn't know what to study. I wasn't particularly interested in school. I really loved like working with my hands. And so my dad, who is a big proponent of not going to college unless you, you know, uh, really, you know, had a good idea of why. He also had three children who went before me to college. So that might be part of the reason. Um, he, he got kicked out of college um, for dropping a lot of acid at a very conservative <laughs> Christian school in the 70s. So um, he, he did just fine. And he was very, uh, did a lot of different jobs and taught himself computers in the 80s. And so he like became a computer programmer. He had a chimney sweeping business that he started at one point. Um, so pretty cool guy. Um, and he gave me the advice to, if you don't know what you want to go to college for, don't go there to figure it out. It's too expensive. <laughs> so I had some money in the bank and I was like 17, 18. And my brother had just taken a semester off of college to go to Australia to work with this like uh Christian like um I don't know how to describe it sort of like a missions organization it's like this non-denominational international group that did like you know build houses and various things and it's like very wholesome and um I was like you know 17 18 and like a very you know very good kid played a lot of Dungeons and Dragons and went to like youth group and that kind of stuff. And um, I just decided, you know, here's something I could do on the other side of the world. And I could get out of this town that I, I also didn't live in the city, I lived in the suburbs, which I was not a big fan of. Um, so I decided, I don't know what to go to college for. I've got some money. Um, why don't I just go to the other side of the world like my brother just did? And so I decided I'd go for like, this like six month stint, which is like working with this group and you go in and it's a whole thing. And I went there for six months and ended up staying for like four years and, <laughs> and just had a lot of great adventures and traveled around the country and went to, you know, tiny remote villages in Fiji and Solomon Islands and places. And uh, then decided very randomly, I either wanted to go to school for music or fine art you know, of course, you know, my practical father, uh, you know, telling me to not go to college unless I know what I want to go for. And then me deciding <laughs> to go for art, um, you know, but he was, he's a very supportive man. So it was all good. It was funny because the deciding factor 
of whether to study music or art was um, my last week living in Australia after being there for about four years, I decided to visit Melbourne, which is um, which is very silly that I hadn't been there in all those years. So I lived in Brisbane um, and I went to Melbourne and Melbourne's like, this was in 20, uh, 2007 and I haven't been there since, but at the time uh, it was very much like, you know, Williamsburg in 2010, maybe like really hip, like cool graffiti art everywhere. Everyone like dressed in the most interesting like outfits and all this kind of stuff. And it was just like so mind blowing to me. And like everyone was so cool and there's amazing art all over the streets. And then I was like, uh, and it was like the time of like Banksy was really big. And so I got like really into street art. I came home, got a job in a restaurant and just started like figuring out how to like become an artist basically. I had taken a couple art classes in school, but I didn't have a portfolio. I decided I had to go to art school. And so I went home and I was wanted to move to Melbourne. I was like, okay, cool. I'm going to like go to art school there. I was totally out of money. And I looked into it and school, if you were from Australia, was like quite cheap. But if you're an expat, it was quite expensive. I had no money. And so I looked into it and I actually went to my high school to talk to the art teacher there who I'd had one class with and who's very friendly and helpful. And I was like, how do you get into art school? Like, he's like, well, I need a portfolio. And I was like, I don't really have anything. I have some stuff from <laughs> high school classes. And he's like, okay, well, you should, I showed him some drawings I'd been doing, which were very like cringy stuff. Um, so <laughs> um, awesome. I'd been really getting into street art. Yeah, I was making stencils and like spray painting on like, you know, pieces of wood and cardboard. And I was just like, I, I just thought I was, it was cool, man. I thought I was like the <laughs> coolest kid in town. And, uh, <laughs> and um, he was like, okay, well, you need to take some like actual art classes and like have a portfolio. And so I took some like community art classes. I did like a semester of community college to take art classes to build a portfolio. And then I applied to the Tyler School of Art, um, which is in Philly. And it is a, like a state school. It's part of Temple University. And it's actually a very reputable school. I applied, I was rejected and I applied again and they accepted me, I think because I was really persistent and I would visit the registrar's office and, and they, I think they were just like this poor kid, like he's really enthusiastic and he really wants to be here. And so, um, and so that's how I got into art school. And, uh, I like what you're just doing my entire life story. Like we'll talk about the business at some point there. Yeah, me too. I was gonna, uh, I, yeah, maybe we'll get to the business at some point. I have to ask though, your dad yeah. seems like a super interesting guy. You said you're from like a wholesome <laughs> uh, family involved in the church. He got kicked out of school for dropping yeah, acid. Yeah, so it's, it's funny. Um, mine is like very yeah. practical, but also advises on like, not going to school if you don't know what you want to do then down for art school if that is what you want to do <laughs> he, he's he's a man full of interesting contradictions and he's um my hero in a lot of ways i actually just had uh, my first uh, child uh, a couple uh, of months ago and we named her willa which is for my dad william um so he's a big uh yeah, he's always been kind of like my th senior thesis show in art school was basically about him. Um, <laughs> but yeah, my dad 
grew up, you know, outside of Philadelphia, very, very strict, like, um, upbringing and naturally like him and his two brothers, like it was 1969 when he graduated high school, he just was like dropping acid and hanging out at the art museum and like, Mm. you know, reading, like listening to a lot of like, you know, Pink Floyd and, uh, all these, uh, all these fun albums and, he went in, he was very smart and got into a, this very reputable um, Christian college that his parents had gone to. And um, then within his first semester, him and his friends, and he was like a good kid. He didn't like party and like cause trouble, but he just like, yeah, him and his friends would drop acid and like hang out and like, yeah, like the stoner types who's like quiet and nice and listening to records. But um, apparently the story goes that like the, the head football coach's daughter was uh in school with my dad at the same time and she started hanging out with this group of friends who were all like dropping acid and so he got all this whole group of friends kicked out of the college except for his daughter because they're bad influences so that's that's what he tells me um so he got kicked out of school and it was during vietnam and so he lost his deferment and so he um decided to enlist in the navy instead of getting drafted into the army um, because he had this like low ticket number or something. And so he, um, <laughs> and he met my mom, he met my mom in college. She was there for about a year and then ran away from home because she was like 16 or 17, started college early and was living with her parents still. Ran away from home to, to hate Asbury Street in San Francisco, like right on the, uh, like in the middle of the San Francisco scene in 1970. Almost went to a party at, um, at Marilyn Manson's house, um, which is wild. Wild. <laughs> and, um, my mom and dad became pen pals. My dad was living here. My mom was in San Francisco. And my, mo- my dad's ex-girlfriend suggested that they become pen pals because my mom was a really good correspondent because she had been a missionary kid growing up and grew up in like the jungles in Peru and like in villages and like traveled all over with her dad. And so she wrote lots of letters and was really good at keeping up with everybody. And so my parents became pen pals and my dad like wooed her via, <laughs> via letters. And then she came, you know, to Philadelphia and they started dating and they did a very what quick, a crazy like, hey, time. Isn't it wild? Like, that's that's such a great wild. Story. <laughs> yeah. I mean, the contradictions yeah, so, of your like family's like roots like being involved in the church, but then also uh, being interested in like the mind altering uh, consciousness, expanding drugs is fascinating. Yeah. Also like the, the traveling, like missionary type, like upbringing in crazy areas of the world is a wild experience. Yeah. Yeah. They both had like, pretty wild backgrounds and they both approach it from like different kind of different perspectives too. where my mom, um, my mom had some like really bad acid trip in San Francisco and then just like stopped doing drugs altogether and started kind of like being like, Oh, you know, exploring her Christian roots again, getting back into that. And at that point, it's a very funny story. because my parents, my dad had proposed to my mom and the way he told it, he was like, well, I liked her. She, she seemed pretty cool and she, you know, she was fun. And if you were in the Navy and he was getting deployed to Morocco, 
um, he's just going to be like working at a base there as a radio man. And in Morocco, you could like bring your wife with you if you were married and they could live off base. And you could, and if you were married, you could live off base, but if you weren't, you had to live in the barracks. And so he was like, well, I figured, you know, that would be nicer. <laughs> and she seemed cool. And if it didn't work out, we'd just get divorced. And um, my mom's rationale was, she was like, I was just had just been like running around too much, doing drugs, like partying, and I just really wanted to settle down. <laughs> so I felt like I was like being led astray or something. And you know, he was just really nice, and I thought like, you know, he wanted to marry me, so like, give it a shot, kind of thing. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and it really did not work out for the first couple of years. They separated after like a year. My dad wanted to get divorced. My mom wouldn't get divorced because she didn't want because she said we'll get divorced, but only if you take all the blame. And my dad was like, well, it's not entirely my fault. And so they separated for like two years and they got married in Gibraltar. It was like, yeah, pretty wild. And they got back together later in Philadelphia and eventually had kids. And my mom was like really kind of wild. Yeah. My mom got really into like the, the Jesus people kind of movement, like the really like kind of pseudo hippie Christians who are like all about peace and love, but from like a Jesus-y perspective um, and joined this group called uh, YWAM, which was Youth with a Mission, and convinced my dad that they should sell everything they own and, like, move to Holland to do this, like, missions work stuff. They did that, and then they ended up moving to Hawaii. Whoa. And so I and my three siblings grew up in Hawaii, living off base from, like, this Christian missions organization for a long time. And then we moved back to Philadelphia when I was 10, when they were like, well, we can't support ourselves anymore and it's too expensive. We need to get real people jobs. And uh, that, that then we grew up in the suburbs of Hawaii living like very, like, like life is beautiful, not life is beautiful. Uh, what is that American one with the, the guy who kills himself in the end, Kevin Spacey movie. Uh, I'm, yeah. Anyway, I'm gonna be the worst very depressing that. suburbs, like after living these like really wild lives. Um, American Beauty, that's the one. That's crazy. And uh, did you yeah. uh, <laughs> when when you got when you got to art school, did you like have uh, an area of focus that you wanted to pursue? Did you? No, did you even think like professionally about what you wanted to do after, or was it like that you wanted to be an artist after? Yeah, I was not thinking very practically about what one could do to make money at this, <laughs> but I've never been deeply practical about how to best make money. I've gotten a lot better at it lately, but when I went to art school, I decided I would study printmaking because it translated best to like uh, street art, which is what I was really into at the time. Um, I would go up to Brooklyn all the time, take the Chinatown bus, throw my bike underneath and like bike all around Brooklyn and go to like art shows and like do spray paint on like, you know, and like Williamsburg on like stencils on shit and like <laughs> just so cool. You know, I had like a single speed. I didn't get a fixed gear bike, but I did grow a handlebar mustache and wear like cut off shorts. And it was like, you know, 20, uh, 2000 and uh, whatever, uh, eight in Williamsburg. Super cool. Um, so I decided to study printmaking because I thought it would translate to like what I thought was really cool at the time. I was really going for a lifestyle. <laughs> and um, then I took a couple printmaking classes, realized I didn't like actually really love the um, 
process of it. I was like, this is okay. I like the results, but I don't like love the process. And then I took a glass blowing class, which Tyler actually has this great glass blowing facility, probably one of the best in the country. And um, it was just so much fun, like just immediate, like incredibly tactile. And I realized um, that I think the thing I really loved about um, street art, as I thought about it later, getting into like much more tactile, like sculpture and making was I really loved how um, artists kind of interacted with architecture and space and public space. And since then, I, in the end, I really think I should have gone to like school for architecture. I think that would have been like really the best thing for me um, because I just became really into like space and objects and you know the interplay of like people in space and all that kind of stuff um but you know did glass blowing um realized by junior year that i probably wasn't going to keep doing glass blowing when i graduated but i didn't want to like switch majors so i just kept doing it but took a lot of other classes and got really into mold making because i thought you know this is like positive and negative space you can make anything out of mold making it translates to metal, to ceramic, to glass, like, yeah, everything and everything. Um, so that's where I landed. And I graduated in 2012 with a degree in fine art with a focus in glass blowing. <laughs> and I worked in restaurants to pay the bills. I had gotten uh, my brother-in-law worked in restaurants and was just kind of proved to me that you didn't know, need to like know anything to make like a ton of money as a server um, and you get stuck to like, and at this point I'd like kind of drifted away from, um, you know, being very Christian. Um, I'd become like very sort of agnostic and was like, had not partied much as a very wholesome young man and then got to college and was like, I should just explore this side of the, <laughs> the world. <laughs> um, and so, you know, got into like just, having as much fun as I could and drinking a lot, started a little late. So, you know, doing that whole thing and working in restaurants was also, you know, terrible influence, but lots of fun. Um, so I worked as a server for about eight years leading into school, during school, after school. And that was how I paid the bills. So I'd work, you know, whatever, three o'clock until you know midnight, one, two o'clock. I'd go out and have drinks, get up whenever I got up, go into an art studio, work until work. And that was like my life after college was like, I was always either in the studio at work or at the bar after work. And it was like that progression all the time. Days off were like almost entirely always in the studio or maybe going to New York for something. Um, that was my life for a little while. And I really didn't know where it was going. Um, I knew that I... I just always assumed that I would have something that was my own and it didn't really matter what it was. Um, my dad started a couple of businesses that were very random, um, making furniture, tried to start a chimney sweeping company <laughs> and then taught himself computers at a suggestion of a friend of his and then became a computer programmer, um, taught him, picked up books and just learned how to do it. Um, so I was always looking for something that I could use artistic skills for to, you know, build something of my own. I had no idea what it was though. And then in 2012, I was working at a restaurant in Philadelphia called Fork, 
which has been around for 25 years now. Really amazing fine dining uh, spot. And I was working for a chef who had just moved to Philadelphia from New York. His name was Eli Culp. And he had worked um, at this Michelin star restaurant in New York and had moved to Philly to like kind of reopen Fork with like a new menu, new design, all this kind of stuff. And he um, was incredible and really um, changed, I think, the way I thought about work in a lot of ways. Um, he managed to like build an amazing back of house team, um, a lot of whom I remain friends with today, who went on to open their own businesses, different restaurants, bakeries, really excellent stuff. And he was just like this very inspiring chef um, who really, I think, just taught me to be incredibly passionate about whatever work I'm doing. And also instilled in me that like, if you want to do something great, you have to work like mad to make it happen and be okay with like being a totally broke, like hobo while doing it. If you're passionate about it. <laughs> um, so he, yeah, that's what a good chef has to inspire, you know, their backup has to work for, you know, $10 an hour for, you know, 10 to 12 hour days, you know, I was front of house, so I actually made money. I was going to say, was he like that? Uh, he, he had done that, but now he was doing okay. <laughs> he did work crazy. He was there more than anybody. Like he worked insane hours. Um, and he was incredible. Um, I always feel like fine dining restaurants are like the greatest training ground uh, for really like any pursuit in life. Like, uh, yeah, the monotony of it, like not being able to take your eyes off of like the smallest details, continually like wanting to refine and improve even though you're doing like almost the same thing day in and day yeah. out. And then also like the fact that nothing that you did yesterday matters <laughs> the day of, like it's, it's always a new the day. Yeah. It's like such a crazy life yeah. style, but I guess everything's like that. Just maybe less obvious. Yeah. Yeah. I think what I came away with from that was, I really learned how to like um, shift on a dime and prioritize things really quickly and reprioritize as a, you know, as a server, like really high volume and high touch, you know, you have like a stack of about 20 priorities in your head that are constantly flipping and like, you're going to go clear this table. You're going to run that dessert. You're going to take this drink order. You're going to do the, all of this row as efficiently as possible based on like where you are in the restaurant. then as you're going to do something, somebody grabs you to do say something and everything shifts and everything rearranges itself constantly, which it served me quite well starting a business. Um, so I started the business because um, Eli, the chef, knew I did ceramics. He had no idea how little I knew about ceramics, which was um, <laughs> I had started playing with ceramics a lot more. So I was getting into mold making. So I was, ceramics struck me as the thing that I could do without having to like be beholden to someone else. Clay is cheap. Um, I could do the mold making to do slip casting, which is what I started out doing. And all I had to do is be able to fire it. You can use community kilns. You can buy a pretty cheap kiln. Clay and glaze are cheap. So it's like a medium that has like a fairly low bar of entry, but a... Um, you know, uh, 
you could kind of like it can it can be fine art it can be like expensive vases and tableware and things like that there's a there's a perception of the material that is high although the fact that the raw materials are pretty cheap and so that was like this practical side of me um so that's why and you can do so much with it make anything out of clay and so i started playing around with it a lot and then eli came up to me one day and he's like hey you're you're uh you're like a ceramic artist right you're like a potter or something i'm like i was like yeah pretty much and um he's like he said, well we're opening this new restaurant next year i really want to do like really cool like handmade plates and i was like oh okay yeah i could do that and i'd never made a plate in my life um but i was like yeah certainly you know um, and so I had about a year to figure out how to make plates for this restaurant. And it started out like really low key, just like, Hey, you know, I'll uh, do this little gig. I'll make a little bit of money and I'll learn how to make a plate and this will be great. And it'll, it'll be fun. And, um, you know, while working on it, I really started thinking about it because, um, also at the same time, uh, the owner of the restaurant was this woman, Ellen Yin, who's like a very, um, respected restaurateur in Philadelphia. And I was talking with her about it one day. She liked me a lot. We got along well. And I was kind of complaining a little bit. She was like, how's that plate project coming? So, yeah, it's a new restaurant. It's her restaurant. Yeah. <laughs> it was opening in you know, six months or so. And I was like, well, well, you know, it's good. I'm playing around. I've really kind of spent like, yeah, I'd spent like three, $400 on materials and playing around. I hadn't seen any return from it, obviously, at this point. I was like, yeah, I've spent this money. I don't know. Like, I'm not like really happy. I'm not sure. And, and she just looked at me. and was like, Nate, you're thinking so small. And that's all she said. And I was like, okay. And I walked away from that conversation. And I was like, maybe there's, like, maybe it's more than just like this little gig, you know, maybe there's something more here. And um, I started thinking about it. And so at the time, um, there's like the top 50 restaurant list, top 50 restaurants in the world um, that gets put out every year. And at the time, uh, the restaurant Noma had been called like the best restaurant in the world a couple years running. Um, this restaurant in Copenhagen. Uh, and they were using handmade plates from this guy named Casper Wurtz, who's like this Swedish, I think, ceramicist. And it's made these like cool, interesting glazes, like rustic kind of plates. And it struck me that if the best restaurant in the world is using handmade tableware, then every cool chef, up and coming chef, or like established chef is probably taking cues from Noma in like, what are they doing and looking at them? And so it's like, so a bunch of restaurants are gonna start wanting to use cool handmade plates. And eventually, like probably Arby's is gonna like have some like version of this, you know? It's like the trickle down of like cooker <laughs> fashion that, you know, it's in Target like a year from now, whatever, you know, someone was doing on a runway in Milan like a year ago, you know, trickles down. And so I was like, okay, this is like a thing. I don't really know if anybody's doing this. I looked into it. It didn't seem like there were many people like specifically making tableware for chefs. And so that's how the business started. I was like, okay, I'll make a business that makes tableware for restaurants. And that'll be the vehicle for me to build a studio to make cool, weird, fun stuff. I, I wanted to make really, you know, funky, weird design, like, uh, you know, just fun, weird stuff. And so I was like, plates are fine. <laughs> I'll make them. I'll figure out how to make a business around that so that I can do this other thing. And um, that's how it started. It's been about 10 years. And I feel like pretty confident about making plates. Not like amazing. I feel like pretty good about it. Um, <laughs> and we are and we have been able to do some like pretty fun, weird stuff along the way. So we've got a lot of like really, really weird, really fun stuff we're working on right now. Um, so to summarize the entire business, I made support for a restaurant. 
then. <laughs> was that first restaurant how you got contacts to start making plates or like tableware for other restaurants? Is that what it ended up being? Like the business was making these like more one-off type custom uh, sets? Yeah. So it started out um, making plates for this restaurant and ended up being this restaurant called High Street on Market. Um, so High Street on Market was named top 10 best new restaurants by Food and Wine. Eli was named top 10 best new chefs by Bon Appetit. Uh, that also might be reversed. It may have been Bon Appetit, best new restaurant. Anyway, so he, you know, uh, High Street on Market ended up getting all these accolades. And we made the plates. I made the plates. I had a friend of mine who I worked with early on who was actually a good ceramicist who threw everything. I made the molds and did more of the production and design. And the, we worked together. So I say we. Um, <laughs> and um, so we got, we did this restaurant and then people thought we knew what we were talking about because we were in this cool restaurant. They got all these accolades. And so then we started talking to some more chefs and just like really slowly, organically started making product. Didn't pay ourselves for a couple of years because like we could barely, I was still working in the restaurant. My buddy Wynn was still working at this gallery and we would just work full-time making tableware and then full-time at our other jobs. And that's how it started. When did you start selling? Uh, did you immediately start selling stuff like outside of the chef world? Or did you wait for some time as you like built up the... Yeah. So after the first couple of jobs, um, I started like really thinking like, what does this look like long term? Like how big should it be? Like what? I didn't even know what to like charge for things how you make this like a practical kind of like long-term business. And thankfully I was like naive enough to think we could do just like anything. And I had gone to San Francisco and I visited Heath Ceramics in San Francisco, which is a great company. And I saw their setup and they did like the tableware factory tour. And I was like, this is totally achievable. We can do this. This is like, you know, <laughs> it's and it you know it's not that crazy um it's a little it was definitely like uh, you know it'll take us a few years but like we can get here this isn't like not this isn't crazy um and so then we had i had started you know we're using instagram for the business in just like a very just hey we're having fun and here's pictures of what we're doing and we just gained the steady following and it was early instagram back when instagram was fun and um and we just got this like good natural following and ceramics on Instagram was like hip and cool and just upcoming at the time. Now there's like a million cool ceramicists on Instagram who are amazing. Um, but it was like a much smaller community at the outset. And so we got some good following. We ended up doing a Kickstarter as a suggestion from a friend of mine. Um, and so we got a big bump from that. We got like $25,000, um, which we used to buy a kiln, a bigger kiln. We had bought this one cheap one off of some banker who had bought it for his wife as a birthday gift didn't really work out. And we bought another kiln, the better kiln with this Kickstarter money. And we started paying ourselves. We could quit our jobs, not paying ourselves well by any means, but um, moved into a bigger space. I had been in 300 square feet for our studio when we started. So we moved into like a 1600 square foot space. Um, we had some interns who turned into employees and, um, and we started, you know, selling our stuff, at some pop-ups, um, some shows, some, uh, you know, marketplaces and things like that. And then, um, then we launched a little like Squarespace website, selling our stuff on there, 
but we didn't do any marketing until 20 late 2019 and even and then we had a tiny budget because i was like i can't afford to spend money on something that doesn't like doesn't like like, it's not a piece of equipment like yeah marketing like i don't i don't know and um (laughs) so everything was inbound it was all natural we never wrote a sales email to anyone the entire business was built off people emailing us and asking us to make things up until probably 2020 that's crazy how recent it changed i mean not that it's even changed but uh do you guys still do uh tableware for chefs like as one off yeah so um the business has changed a lot since it started it started out like very organic no idea what we were doing no business sense no managerial sense barely know how to make a plate and um it was really like organically growing in the first few years and then in 2017 um got a loan figured out how to get a loan from a bank bought a bigger kiln moved into a bigger space uh, started getting some like bigger restaurant accounts and things like that. Still selling online. It was typically like 20 to 30% of the business. Um, I knew in the long term that growing D2C was like the uh, way to kind of like really grow the business and make you know good money doing this because we were always just scraping by. Um, but doing D2C was such a different animal than wholesale because wholesale is like the product is purchased before you make it, you know. You got the order in hand, you go make it. Easy. I know how to do that. And D2C was this whole world of marketing and like customer uh, customer uh, care. And, you know, people want the stuff to ship like when they buy it, which is crazy. <laughs> um, so it was a whole different animal entirely. <laughs> and uh, so when we, I knew we needed to scale up a good amount to be able to service D2C in a uh, in a way where people were actually happy, you know, because we had built-in lead times, and you know, people got that. You know, we didn't get a ton of it. It would be, you know, it'd be like a month or two before you'd get what you purchased. Um, and we did have customers, but you know, you'd always have people emailing, you, "Hey, how's it going? How's the table work coming? Oh, it's it's coming. We promise. You know, it's gonna, you're gonna get it." And, <laughs> and um, so. We, we, we got that loan, which helped us out. We scaled up a little bit more. We had about like five, six employees um, turning out maybe 20, 30,000 pieces a year um, and doing a lot of restaurants, doing the D2C thing. And then 2020 happened. Um, you know, we knew that we could grow and we knew that we could make a lot of money because people loved our stuff. And um, we just didn't have the equipment to scale it. And we didn't have the workforce and all this kind of all this infrastructure that cost, cost money up front. So we didn't have upfront money. I started with whatever was in my bank account, a couple thousand dollars, and grew it organically till we got this one little loan, got a bigger kiln. And so we knew if we could prove that there was demand for our product, we could get the the kind of startup money to build the thing into like a scaled business and service much better D2C by being able to ship quickly. We could service much bigger hospitality accounts because we could take on, you know, you know, the hotels who need thousands of pieces within like a month's time, that kind of thing. And um, and we could drive our costs down by investing in, you know, equipment that takes away some of the like the busy work that doesn't add value. Like, you know, it, it's a lovely idea for it to be like fully, fully handmade, like every step of the process. But like 
there's a lot of stuff we do that, you know, hand trimming stuff that was slip cast or pressed, you know, it doesn't really make it any better. Um, you know, it just yeah. adds a ton of labor that it doesn't add any value. Right. So we, um, decided we needed to like figure out how to scale it. Um, but we needed to prove to someone that it was saleable so we could get money <laughs> to scale it. Um, so when 2020 happened, um, I knew hospitality was dead in the water for at least a year. Um, everything I was hearing about COVID was like, <clears throat> this is not a couple months. This is like a big deal. Um, so we shut down for, you know, a little while. I was still going in, but my staff were out. We shut down. Um, I applied for every possible loan and grant I could. We got PPP money. We got a grant. We got this EIDL loan from the government. And so we suddenly had more money than we'd ever had before because of COVID. Um, just in the bank, money to play around with and take risks with. And so um, I hired a creative agency who helped us like start putting together like real ads, um, <laughs> actually put some budget behind marketing. Crazy. Um, yeah, we refreshed our website a little bit. Um, I actually hired more people so we could make more product to like get it out the door faster. And, you know, we went from you know, and that all happened like Q4 of 2020, like scaling up. We we did like the same revenue in 2020 as we did in 2019, despite like hospitality basically COVID. being totally gone. And so it was about $400,000 in revenue in 2020. And then in 2021, we did over a million dollars in revenue, um, still with hospitality having dropped down quite a bit. Um, so we did this big jump in revenue and with that, I could apply for a big loan and get some investment. And so that is what we did. I, was, I worked on like a thousand pitch decks. We got <laughs> investment, we got a $1.2 million loan, um, and we are finalizing, uh, design and construction of like a little like real factory here in Philadelphia, Heath, a Heath level, almost factory here in Philadelphia. That's awesome. Um, and that will be online late next year. Um, so we're, we're is, scaling, we're doing it. <laughs> is the hospitality business like back in, uh, in swing? Yeah. Um, it's really come back. Um, I don't, I, it's a good year for us for hospitality for sure. Um, D2C has been growing, uh, well, grew quite a lot last year. It's still growing for us. It's not growing as much as we had hoped because of, you know, the world falling apart. Um, however, yeah. we've made up for it with hospitality and with starting to do actual, you know, sales outreach. I hired a salesperson. Wild. Um, so, <laughs> yeah, we've, uh, despite, you know, uh, the craziness of the world uh, you know we've grown our revenue in d2c and we've grown tremendously in hospitality this year and we've got some really really fun collaborations uh, we're working on for next year as well some cool brands so uh yeah somehow here we are <laughs> surviving how, and thriving it's crazy how like organically you started everything but also the fact that you're like willing to uh I, not willing to, but, uh, you know, you, you said you weren't like planning that far in advance in the beginning, but like at these stages now, like the ability for you to bet 
on like these loans in order to scale or even like the scaling in general the fact that you have to like kind of bet up front take some risk yeah so that's so the thing is that's always been really tricky about what we do is um there's a lot of brands out there um in like the in like the home goods product space right that um you know they come up with a uh, business model they do the design they build the website they design some product they have it made wherever it's made and they buy it and they stock it and they sell it and that's a great way to start a business it's probably a very smart way to start a business um what we did what i did was like oh i want to start a factory and hopefully i can have a business to justify it um so (laughs) the opposite (laughs) and so well the tricky thing is like if you make it yourself, number one, you have to know how the heck to make the stuff. Um, and then number two, you have to like have the people, you have to have the facilities, you have to do all the stuff. It's a huge expenditure. Um, yeah, I don't know if you know, but building a factory, not that cheap, um, I've discovered. It doesn't um, sound cheap. <laughs> so, um, however, if you can do it, if you can do it, if you can control the means of production, um, it unlocks kind of this superpower because these other companies who are out there um, coming up with this great idea, coming up with some designs and putting it out on the market, have to deal with the factories who have minimum order quantities, who are based typically, at least in the tableware world, in like China or Portugal these days or Mexico. And, um, you know, you give them the designs and work with their team to design it, make it, and you, know, you got to order maybe five to 20,000 of a skew for them to like even consider working with you. And uh, then hopefully you can sell the stuff. Whereas if you have the factory and you design the stuff yourself, you can design two plates and see if anybody wants to buy them. And if a hundred people want to buy them, you can scale it up. And if a thousand people want to buy them, you can scale it up even more. And so when you control the means of production and know how to do it, I can take a million, like the risks are tiny. I can design something new, see if people like it. If they don't, get the new thing, design a new thing and just keep iterating new ideas, finding chefs who might want to have this thing. And nowadays we have people approaching us constantly about about making things for them because the supply chain became such a mess in the last two years. People are much more interested in domestic manufacturing than they ever have been. And so now if I, if my stuff doesn't work out, nobody wants to buy my stuff anymore. I can make other people's stuff. Um, I think people like our stuff though. So I think we'll keep making it. But um, that's always for me been like, maybe I'm a control person, but I didn't want to, I wanted the whole thing. You know, I realized all these things are like <laughs> business concepts, and vertical integration, all this kind of stuff. I was just doing it because I thought yeah. it seemed, seemed to make sense to me, you know? I used to uh, I used to make T-shirts when I was in high school, uh, like I screen printed T-shirts, and I feel like the um, I don't know, just like the drive to figure something out and to make something, it's almost like more enticing than like the financial aspect of it. It's literally just like I need to figure out how to do this and to do it better and more than I'm doing it now. And uh, so that part, I feel like I understand, or at least like the, yeah, 
just like the feedback loops of it. Like, oh, I fucked this up. I need to figure out how to do this better next time. That's like a fascinating process that you don't really get most often nowadays. Yeah, the 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 separation of people knowing like how a thing is made, you know? Um and people love those like how how this is built videos and all that kind of stuff because I think there's like this separation of the stuff you have in your home from like, you know, how does it actually get made? Like, is it, you know, what is, like we picture these robot factories with like arms <laughs> grabbing the thing and putting it here and putting it there and like it's removal. Um, and, you know, for me, I've always just been like, cool, let's like renovate this house. Let's knock down that wall. Like oh, that pipe's connected to that pipe. And so it must go to that part. And I'll like maybe turn the water off first, but cut this thing and solder this thing together and just figure it out. And that's like where the fun is, you know? Um, it's great when we can make, <laughs> but where do you, uh, try, or do you try to get a, like business advice? Uh, do you have like advisor type people that have like done yeah, similar yeah. <laughs> endeavors to what you're doing? Cause it's also a pretty unique thing. Yeah. So it was very wild west for a while. And, um, it has always been my policy to find people much smarter than myself <laughs> and to ask them how to do things. So, um, very early on, uh, I brought on board as a partner in the business, a guy named Joel Evie, who is currently like the creative director at Grailed, which is a, a cool um, online uh, marketplace, which was actually just acquired by Goat. Um, but Joel yeah, worked I think I saw as an art director for Urban Corporate, and then he worked for Need Supply, and then he was like the head of creative for Gap. And he's just like, we came to Philly at the same time, we're buddies, and He's amazing art director, creative, and um, I just wanted him to like make our logo. And um, at first, he was like, "Ah, I don't really have time for it." And then I was like, "He's like, okay." Once we started, like, you know, 2015, we started to actually like know a little bit of what we we're doing, and he thought it was really cool. And so he came on as a partner, and so he's been a constant in the world of like brand positioning, you know, introducing us to people, all that kind of stuff. Um, later on. Um, you know, I, I've talked to a lot of people. Our lawyer is this wonderful guy who, like, uh, is has always had great advice for us. <laughs> He's a really cool guy who mostly, like, works with, like, small creative brands. Um, I started uh, finding a lot of great chefs who I talked to over the years. Mike Salmanov is a Philly-based chef who's, like, amazing and has given me advice a number of times. Eli Colt, who was the first chef we worked with. Um, I've talked to him a number of times about business advice. And in the beginning of this year, we hired uh, as a consultant a guy named Milton Duku, or Duque, rather, <laughs> I should know this, who is our like head of growth on a <laughs> consulting basis, who uh, was a friend of Joel's, who was also uh, still is involved at Grailed. Um, so he's been really helping with like the D2C side and like really, you know, re, you know, redoing our website and hiring like good agencies for, you know, a Shopify website and, you know, managing the creative for ads and all this kind of stuff. And we're bringing on board an amazing uh, brand brand marketing director right now. And so I, uh, <laughs> I'm eclectic and I do a million things, but I tend to try to find people who really know what they're talking about to help us, uh, help us grow. And so, yes, it's, it is certainly not all me. There are many very smart people who, uh, who work with us. Looking back uh, since the start, is there any like 
advice that you wish you would have had or would give yourself? Hmm, that's a good question. Um, number one is patience. Um, you know, on the one hand, um, patience, you know, being impatient can be a good thing if you're willing to like run to get somewhere, but knowing that like, it's a long game is a good thing. It probably would have saved me a lot of frustration at times. Um, very eager to like build this amazing thing. Um, the other thing that I had to learn early on was to take myself more seriously. Um, which I think the first few years, um, I really could have used that advice um, because I was, you know, this kid as a youngest of four. So I've always thought of myself as like a kid who like, yeah, I have no responsibility. Like, you know, nobody takes me seriously. You know, I'm just like, I'm just fun. I'm a fun boss. And so we started and I had employees. It was this whole kind of like trying to be like a, you know, oh, we're all just buddies, like hanging out, making stuff, being cool. You know, uh, you know, nobody gets paid. Like, no, I didn't get paid anything. Nobody gets paid anything. But we're all having fun. It's a good time. And um, <laughs> I'm like, yeah, there's no work-life boundaries. It's all just like this cool, fun, hip thing. And that doesn't really, that's not very sustainable, I found. <laughs> um, which we totally, you know, 360, 180, <laughs> 360, yeah, 180 turned that and, you know, really focused on staff and really focused on like, you know, upping the pay as much as we possibly could all the time, increasing benefits, you know, hiring amazing people. Um, and, uh, you know, that really turned around. I wish I had thought about that more deeply earlier on, um, for sure, because the first few years. Yeah. Do you think it would have changed? I guess probably like relationship wise, it might change a lot. Uh, yeah. I also think that's like natural. If you bootstrap a business, like you kind of are forced to learn those things at different stages. Cause also in the beginning, like probably couldn't even afford to do that like maybe the uh casualness of everything also helped get like the right people involved that especially because you can't pay them that well at that time like versus you being like very pro in the beginning and then also like the other shit doesn't line up like are we getting paid well like if this is gonna be how yeah. this is uh yeah i just feel like at each stage you like kind of are growing up as you go through different things, it becomes more yeah, serious yeah. over time too. A hundred percent. I think the thing, a big thing too, is like when I started the business, um, you know, my original partner, when um, he, you know, had, I don't want to like talk too much about his own stuff, but he had some issues he had to deal with. He had a really hard time and I was like really pushing him forward in the business to like work really hard and like go yeah i would just work all the time like crazy hours and he just wasn't able to do that in the same way for for real real reasons real like legitimate reasons and that caused some rift with us for a little while and you know we had a you know he he left the business in 2017 it was like not great you know um and we patched things up you know a couple of years ago and we're good friends now and i really had to learn that like not everyone you know, wants to work the same way you do. And like, if the, and like, he was a, you know, business owner, but then, you know, you had staff who like, you expected to burn themselves out as much as you would without any ownership of the business and, you know, not, not making good money either. It's like, you can't expect people who don't have a stake in the business to work like maniacs for no pay, you know, because you do, 
you know, because you own the business, so you're supposed to, you know, other yeah. people, you can't, you can't expect that of them unless you have some great upside that they're going to like make a ton of money one day, you know? <laughs> so you have to, you have to understand that your staff are people with whole lives and they need incentives. They need to be recognized. They need to be encouraged and, uh, you know, rewarded. <laughs> so that's a big one. Now that you have like a bigger team and a bigger operation, how do you keep yourself like in a creative mindset, uh, excited, like about new projects and not just like focusing on the stress of running? That has been a great challenge. Um, for the, fir the first few years, we're like incredibly creative and fun and wild and like coming up with new designs constantly and just like it was just the wild west and it was a great time and a challenging time too um for several years pretty much 2017 until maybe 20 you know up until quite recently the last like two years it was just figuring out how to survive how to make any kind of money doing this and how to like make the stuff we'd been making faster and better and higher quality and all this kind of stuff and now, I think only quite recently, I started putting into place like much better practices for getting to keep the creative juices flowing. Um, I hired this uh, woman who is also, um, you know, uh, on like a partnership level at the business. Um, this amazing artist named Lauren Mabry, who's a friend of mine, who's a very celebrated you know, ceramic artist in her own right, who started working on Blaze Development with me. Uh, two days a week. Um, then recently hired an amazing artist named uh, Jolie No, who's a um, ceramic artist uh, who does like 3D printed ceramic art, but it's like this great 3D modeler. Um, started working with her and like started getting like the creative people who are in my business already to weigh in on things and then like sought out more collaborations. I think for me, the creative creativity flows through collaboration and community more than anything. I can't sit in a room and come up with amazing stuff by myself. I've never been a great artist in that way. There's, you know, some people are just like geniuses who like sit in a box and can come, come up with something out of nothing. I thrive on deadlines, challenges, and, and, and collaboration, you know? So if I can get a room full of like, a, you know, a couple creative artists and just like spitball their ideas around be like, all right, soap dish. Like, what? Let's like, what are like a hundred ideas for a soap dish? And like, let's and blazes and like, you know, texture and color and so. That has been happening a lot more now, which is great. And we're really excited. We have some really fun stuff we're working on now. That you know, it's not shown up as much in the brand in the last uh, year. Uh, we have some plans on how that'll show up more in the coming year. Uh, more fun, exciting kind of one-offs, collaborations, drops, uh, things like that. So. Um, yeah, it's it's the creativity's really come back in a really fun way in the last year by by building the space for it, getting the people for it, making the time for it, basically. That's awesome. I mean, crazy uh evolution and life background too. Thank going you. into the brand. Congrats on everything. When's the when's the factory like planned to be done? Well, hopefully July of 2023 um to have a big wild uh, party in philadelphia when the factory opens um we've got some we've got some fun ideas we're working on 
there may be competitions, there may be wild trophies, there may be music, lights, who knows? You're going to get wild. It's going to be like, a, it's the reason you start a brand for me is a community and the creativity, you know? Uh, hopefully the money comes. Um, I mean, to have a space like that, uh, yeah, it seems like such a fun thing, especially knowing like how you started, like working restaurants, going to the studio, like the day after. I feel like most people after they get out of art school, like get burnt out on working and then they don't keep making shit. So the fact that you did that throughout, like, and now you have your own space that's come to, or coming to fruition is pretty awesome. Yeah, yeah. It is kind of like um, the last 10 years, which is almost 10 years of building this business now. Um, this will be 10 years, 2023, started in 2013. Um, I, I like to tell people this has been like the prologue, you know? Yeah. Um, and now I feel like we're a startup in a <laughs> lot of ways. Like we got some funding. We're building this space with the idea that like, if you build it, they will come kind of thing. Um, so, you know, if we talk in two years, you know, we'll see, yeah. <laughs> um, but I feel pretty good about it and it's very exciting. And I have an amazing team now, about 20 staff, the culture is great. We have some fun parties. Uh, it's good people. Yeah. And I have a kid, I'm married and I have a kid now. Well, I'm like an adult yeah. now. It's wild. <laughs> yeah it's crazy you never like really feel like that part's changed though i mean you do yeah but also don't like mentally i have yeah. two kids now and i'm just like so wild like uh i don't feel that different than i did mentally when i was younger who let us have kids right? yeah yeah <laughs> well thanks again for doing this it was awesome uh Definitely would love yeah. to stay in touch. If I'm ever in Philly, I'll try and come by. Right, 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 right.